humans, this is Crackerjack, Australian wrestling legend, and you are watching 55 Live. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show here on the WZWA Network. I am your host with the most California inferior alongside, as per usual, my co-host, Mr. 55 Live, Jack Wallace. Jack, how are you feeling today? Fucking shit. But for a very good reason and for a very good cause, as our uh, very close friend uh, actually uh, got, got engaged recently. He's um, thrown his life away, so we went to celebrate his engagement last night. And Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I'm feeling you, bro. I, I just had to down a, a whole Gatorade uh, trying to get myself together. I, I often wonder, do, do Gatorade realize that um, their target audience being athletes, that's just not the case. It's for hungover pieces of shit like me. So um, I'm, I'm feeling a bit better, and now I've cracked open a beer which is a terrible idea, but <laughs> got to do it, bro. <laughs> um, but hey, Jack, look, we've got another Jack on the show here today, and I'm very excited to talk to him. He's an Australian wrestling legend, and he is also hungover. He is the mad bastard. He is Cracker Jack. How you going, my friend? Uh, yeah, I feel like us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, basically spent the whole day curled up into a ball. Um, haven't vomited yet, but I've been shooting boots. So it's only going one way. It's a disaster, though. I feel absolutely terrible. Let's make some quality content. <laughs> awesome, bro. What did you get up to last night that, uh, that sent you to this deep, dark place that we're all in today? Um, oh, well, uh, you know, they finally uh, dismantled the ring of steel that surrounds Melbourne, Victoria at the moment. And uh, the bastard bunker is located outside of that in the mountains. So we could actually host people. So I had people come around and they go, way too drunk. I think at some point I actually got up and made a roast dinner in the middle of the party. Uh, <laughs> it's all still in the kitchen. Like I just stumbled in there and it's just uh, orange peels everywhere from all the old fashions I was mixing and um, like baking trays filled with oil and shit. It's, it's fun. I don't want to. Part of the point of doing this is to postpone having to clean the kitchen. <laughs> oh shit. Well, at least we all had fun, right? Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Cracker Jack, uh, the first question we always ask here on the show is, how did you become a wrestling fan as a youngin? Ah, okay, cool. I, um, on a whim, I went to the video store and I rented Super, Wrestle Super WrestleMania on the Super Nintendo in uh, 1992. Obviously, cool. Um, and the game was all right, but uh, I was really taken by the, the booklet back when games came with booklets. I uh, had like little character buyers at the end, and all the characters in the game were exactly the same, but if that sort of fleshed out the characters, of oh, these guys sound cool. Oh, Undertaker, he sounds cool. Hope he wins a lot. And so from there, I uh, started renting videos because that was how we accessed it back then. Uh, the magazines that you could get from the newsagents were about three months behind, and the videos were about four months behind. Um, and that was how you consumed wrestling in those days. Uh, yeah, so I got a taste for it from there. Right, cool. Yeah, I have Super WrestleMania on uh, the SNES as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> video games were a pretty big part uh, of uh, a lot of uh, you know young Australian wrestling fans' journey. Uh, being a fan, obviously, 
everyone we've had on the show has talked about going to the video store, hiring them out three mm. months behind. Um, I, I think there's a, there's a charming kind of uh, aspect of being a fan back in those days, the magazines and, and all that stuff. Um, so like, did you finally get to see it on television when it was on Foxtel? Oh, years later. So my trajectory for actually watching it was videos. Wide World of Sport was on Channel 9 on, the, uh, on a Sunday afternoon, and I'd sit through like five hours of cricket to get to watch one wrestling match. Right, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and then WCW was the one you couldn't really get access to. WWF had their videos and stuff. And then Channel 9 started hosting that crappy WCW Worldwide. That was one of Bischoff's initiatives where it's like on the rotating stage at MGM Studios. All right. But finally, I could see these guys I'd seen in magazines like Sting and Vader and guys like that. But then you watch the, the show and it's mainly like Terry Taylor versus Nasty Ned. And stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and then um, Boxtel took a while to get to Australia. So we had uh, Ozstar and Optus TV or some shit like that. But right. they started carrying WCW so that the Monday Night Wars were kicking off at the NWO. And so that really exposed me to all that product and the luchadors. And it was sort of, but we're probably talking, I don't know, like 97, 98. And so right. I in the luchadors that made me think, oh, maybe I actually could be a wrestler. Because I wanted to be, since I started watching it in 92, but they're all giants. Like the smallest guy in the company was Bret Hart. He's like six one. Uh, but yeah. then seeing all the, the luchadors and the, the smaller influence made me think, fuck, I could do this. I'm bigger than those guys. Right. <laughs> Talented, but bigger than those guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how did you... Um, you know, go from being just a fan to figure, trying to figure out a way to get into wrestling in Australia. Um, you know, what was your first step into trying to find somewhere to get training? Uh, well, I found out it first existed because I think uh, in 92 and 93, uh, a couple of wrestling tours ran called, I believe it was called Wrestle Riot or Wrestle something. Someone correct, correct me in the comments. But um, the second one they brought out, uh, I think Demolition Smash versus Road Warrior Hawk, Big Boss Man versus Nails. Oh. Uh, you didn't have the cool voice effect in person though. And um, they had, on the undercard were Australian wrestlers. And I was like, oh, there's Australian wrestling, you know, which is still the conversation you have now. We use your wrestling. And they go, uh, there's wrestling in Australia. And you go, yeah, yeah, there is. And they say, is it like UFC? And I say, it's exactly like UFC. <laughs> um, but uh, I saw some proper just local, local shows sort of in the late 90s. I ended up living in the same building as uh, pro wrestling superfan Sue Shooter. I just saw this you know, middle-aged woman walking around in an ECW t-shirt. I'm like, what the fuck? And she was like a massive tape trader. Um, uh, and she had a documentary made about her a few years later about being a superfan. She famously had a Kerry Lawless Slammy Award. You know, right. <laughs> but so she introduced me to a couple of local guys running um, shows and I started training under a second, well, second generation counts if it's an older brother, right? Second generation uh, Melbourne wrestler, Red Hot Ricky Diamond. And so it sort of spilled on from there. Right. That was uh, about 99, 2000. Okay. Over to you, Jack. Sure. Uh, around that same time period, you had your first match in um, <clears throat> 2000. So uh, who was that for? How was your experience with it? Um, and how were you going into that match? Um, I trained for about nine months leading up to that. Uh, training under Ricky Diamond, it was on judo mats out the back oh. of an old blood and guts gym in Richmond. Oh, yeah. The gym was fucking <laughs> cool. Uh, and uh, it was like a back room that was mainly for bodybuilders to pose. The mirror. So there's like shitty training matches of us 
getting whipped and running and doing a big lazy circle around to run back because there were no ropes to bounce off. Uh, and then I started training in a ring under uh, legendary Melbourne grappler, George Hitman Julia. Um, my first in-ring appearance was, uh, it was like a Royal Rumble at a street festival. And I remember hanging around there all day and I was in there for about three and a half minutes. And then my first proper singles match was, fuck, I can't even remember now. What was it? I think it was against uh, Sebastian Walker, um, Gino's manager. So he actually started out as a wrestler at the same time I was. So I think that was probably my first proper match. And my first pro proper aid match was against uh, the late Firestarter for ACW in a Chinese restaurant in Tolmarine. <laughs> what a location, eh? Like, what a venue. It was great. It was our, um, our Corican Hall. But it was like, like it was a crossover to the previous generation because it was run by all the old Italians. Uh, Mario Milano was in the locker room playing cards in his underpants, smoking cigarettes and stuff. It was quite gross. Uh, but that was sort of, I got to be kind of connected to that part of Australian history coming in. Yeah, that's Amazing. awesome, man. That's awesome. So obviously you're sort of um, hanging around all these massive names, you know, you're, um, sort of getting a lot of experience in the ring. How long did it take before you started to make a name for yourself? Uh, it happened quite quickly. I, um, like I worked out, but I didn't have much in the way of an athletic background. So early on, my matches weren't awesome by any means but I could get over. I was funny and wacky. And um, a guy uh, in Melbourne called Rowan Herb Street started running wrestling shows at the All-Star Cafe at the casino. Uh, and they, it was back when uh, Raw was super hot, like it was about 2000. So they'd um, set up a ring, play Raw live on the screens for the, the bar crowd. And then they'd run a wrestling show afterwards. And I got super over there by bringing all my friends from uni to the show. And so they're like, I don't know who this crackerjack is, but they're chanting his name like crazy. Push him! And so I got a push well before I was ready for it there. Uh, and that kind of put me on the map, so to speak, in Melbourne. So it happened pretty early on. Uh, and it took me sort of a few years for my work rate to kind of catch up to uh, where I was popularity once. But no one noticed because I was just, you know, smoke and mirrors. <laughs> exactly. Um, sharing sort of a mutual interest, uh, what is it about hardcore wrestling that attracted uh, you? So I'm a massive hardcore wrestling fan as well. So, um, God, I've got so many reasons that attracts me, but what attracts you to hardcore wrestling? Um, a bunch of stuff. I remember hilariously getting, as I was coming into the, into the business, I'm like, oh, I don't think I'd ever like to do any of that sort of stuff. <laughs> but, um, I remember sort of around 97, the, my local video store had uh, those old Eastern Championship wrestling tapes uh, with like old Cactus Jack versus Sabu, that era. Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember checking out a lot of that and thinking it was fucking cool. But, you know, a lot of my tastes skew in that direction. I love horror movies, um, gore, violence, all that sort of shit. Um, anything that sort of transcends normal tastes, uh, which is why I folded so much of Ash Williams from Evil Dead to Cracker Jack over the years. Um, so yeah, I kind of really got into it from that. And then um, like my first death match, I wasn't even meant, it wasn't a death match, my first hardcore match. I wasn't even meant to take most of the hardcore. Like I was wrestling Mad Dog McRae, who even at that age lived for that shit. And he's like a barbed wire and tables and tacks. And I'm like, I'll just do my joke stuff and then I'll drop you in the sharp things, yeah? He's like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Everything goes to fucking shit. It was a disaster. Um, the table the promoter had gotten for us 
he, instead of getting this like something that could actually be broken by human bodies, he got an inch thick piece of MDF. Um, so it was unbreakable. It just flexed. He came off the top. I, I threw me off the top rope. I hit the table, bounced off it, and it rolled onto me and squashed me. <laughs> laughing. Mad Dog's like, all right, the table won't break. I'll make up for it by wrapping my legs in barbed wire. But there was like a hundred feet of trailing that he couldn't separate. So I tried to German him into the thumbtacks and the wire in his leg hooked on the rope and pulled him up short. So he just squashed me into it. Um, <laughs> it was part of that match. It was a disaster. But I got a real taste for it in that moment. Like um, we called an audible because we couldn't get the wire off him. And he was in the tax, and I put the bastard lock, which is just an elevated Texas cloverleaf on him, and sort of jammed my arms into the, the barbed wire around his legs. And the reaction from people watching was fucking rad. So I'm like, I want, I want more of this. And then I started pursuing it from there. Awesome. <laughs> Jesus <sick>. Christ. Over to you, Carl. So, yeah, I, 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 I'll, I'll say this. I, it, it was really hard with my research to find a lot of information about you. It, it seems with a lot of Australian wrestlers, it's hard to find just a, a solid amount of like a biography of everything that ever happened. Um, but I did go on cagematch.net and see that you, you'd had some uh, barbed wire matches and stuff like that. <laughs> um, I mean, how crazy has it got over the years with the hardcore stuff? For me? Or yeah. for the industry? Um... By Australian standards, pretty gory. I wouldn't think for a second to put anything I've done anywhere near on the level of a Junkazai or um, Masada or anything like that. Um, and over the last few years of my active competition, I did gravitate more towards sort of dramatic long-form storytelling and kept the gore in as a punctuation mark. Um, but uh, yeah, those first few death matches I had were pretty nasty. It was like um, the actually promoted the show that had the barbed wire, Barbara Roberts death match. It was like the second one the country had ever had after the carnage debacle between Mad Dog and uh, Lobo. That drew down uh, hundreds and hundreds of people, but I also drew a lot of heat at the same time. Um, so I did that, that was pretty cool. The worst bit about that one was, um, the finish was Mad Dog broke up all the tubes and light bulbs into the one tray, pile drove me into it, then climbed the ladder, squirted lighter fluid all over his leg and set it on fire. And then leg dropped me. But we had like a rookie on standby with a fire extinguisher and he came in way too soon. So it was like one, two, swoosh, three, blew all the fluorochute glass up in the air. And so as I'm standing up afterwards, after he's got the pin, I can feel my teeth gritting together because I just breathed in a cloud of fluoro dust from the fire extinguisher sending me into the air. <laughs> I almost also destroyed my testicles in that match as well. Imagine a crotch drop on the barbed wire ropes. And then just sort of hip and shoulder you out of the ring into a <laughs> side of a beer garden. Oh. <laughs> I thought he's like, you know, I'm surprised you agreed to that. I got you to do it because I didn't want to. And fuck, dude, anything that Mad Dog McCray doesn't want to do has got to be like the tiniest sliver at the furthest end of hardcore. So I'm like, thanks, asshole. <laughs> but me and my genitals survived. So it was all okay. That's <laughs> fucking um, uh, There was something recently on Twitter. Um, I, I don't know the full story, but uh, I saw you had uh, responded to something the Deathmatch Down Under said, where there was a quote um, saying, some members of Australia's wrestling community voice concerns whether Deathmatch Wrestling should be a part of the Australian wrestling scene. Um, what was going on there? Um, oh, well, I mean, it wasn't me. 
complaining about it. It's, um, I mean, there's, there's far more to complain about in Australian wrestling as far as I'm concerned. Uh, <laughs> quality control than too much death in that match. But uh, I mean, look, it's always been polarizing. Like that's kind of the point, isn't it? Like if it ever, yeah. if death matches got fully accepted, it'd sort of take the fun out of it. Um, like I ran a show for the arts festival in Tasmania, Dark Mofo, a couple of years ago myself and um, journalist Ken Bastow co-promoted it for the after party. And uh, it was like, we tried to make it as offensive as possible because Dark Mofo is a pretty out there, like it's like the opposite of White Knight. It's like art, but trying to be confrontational and transgressive. And so we had an utter bloodbath in the main event between um, Gino Gambino and Mad Dog. And I was disappointed that there wasn't Drama, like a man fainting in the crowd during the cheese grater spot, so that probably. But uh, I was like, oh, where's the controversy? Where's the people being offended? But then when Clem wrote an article for The Guardian about the show in the comments, that's where it all was. And it's all, this is disgusting if these people are animals. And, and I was like, oh, my feelings. Oh, no, wait, wait, no, that's the reaction I wanted. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, it, people get upset. Um, people within the scene sometimes think it's harmful to the scene. Um, I mean, I think any shit show can do damage because, you know, unlike any other art form, like if you go and see a crap comedian on the weekend, you don't go, all Australian comedians are shit, right? You just go, that guy sucks, that band sucks. But for some reason, to casual punters, one is set as an example for all. And if people go and see a shit show, they'll never try any of this out again. So I think a shit show does much more damage to the scene than business yeah. than a show. But, um, I think a lot of it stems from that first carnage that PCW ran in, I want to say 2003 or two. And that was the first no ropes barbed wire death match that I think had happened in the country. And they had 50,000 thumbtacks rain down from the ceiling. And in the wake of it, a couple of um, old school scenesters tried to drum up some argy bargy and make con like uh, scandal where there wasn't. Um, so, you know, I think people losing venues are usually more tied into someone else losing them that venue by calling up and trying to say they do a bad business and stuff like that. Right. So, so yeah, I don't know. It's, this match is meant to be confrontational and it's meant to be controversial, but I don't think, you know, it's really going to be something that destroys the industry. Or yeah. No, I totally agree that there was a company over here in Perth that uh, thankfully is no longer around, but they used to have, Backyard wrestlers wrestle on their show, people who weren't trained and they never held training. And, uh, you know, uh, I think that's much more harmful to uh, Australian wrestling, having companies around getting away with doing stuff like that, as yeah. opposed to yeah. I mean, hardcore wrestling. There'll always be subpar shows, just like there's subpar anything, because it doesn't cost a tremendous amount of money to put on a show. And so that doesn't, that's not your, doesn't work as a gate, a gate to stop that from happening. Um, but yeah, it's, and in terms of, like some people look at it as kind of a safety thing, like they're worried someone's gonna literally die at a death match. But I mean, if I think of all the in-ring deaths that have occurred in the last few years, I don't believe any of them have been involved in death match or anything like that, not at the time. Um, and I've always felt that aside from sort of gnarly flesh wounds uh, or jumping off things from a great height, I don't know that, um, death match is any more life-threatening than a regular match. Like, you know, if you botch a power bomb, you're fucked, no matter whether yeah. you're putting on tax or not. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's much more painful, but I don't know that it's necessarily more life-threatening. Fair enough. Yeah, man. It's a good point. Um, 
I wanted to kind of take a little sidebar away from the hardcore stuff and talk. I just want to know if, if I've actually finally met someone who was a part of this. There was an Austra- a couple of Australian wrestling super shows that aired on Fox Sports many years back. I've yes. never been able to find footage of it since, but I remember watching it as a kid. I had it taped back then. Did you get to perform in any of those shows? And do you have any sort of story about how all that went? Because I'm dying to, to talk to someone who was the father. Yes, of I do. Okay. <laughs> You're in luck. Okay. So the Australian Wrestling Super Show was the brainchild of a guy named Andy Raymond, who I think worked for Foxtel at the time. And so he sort of did the round. It was very Sydney-centric. But, um, you know, as I was coming into the business, that was also as the internet was beginning to proliferate. So... When I was a fan in the 90s, you couldn't really get access to anything else unless someone posted a video to me. Uh, whereas now, you know, there wasn't a lot of footage online, but people could talk about shows online and there were forums and shit like that. So you could be aware of other promotions. Uh, and so he uh, ponied up the money and I think it was some stadium in Homebush. And like it was, you know, it was a decent crowd by his wrestling standards. I'm pretty sure there were maybe a couple of thousand there at least. Someone can correct me in the numbers. But it was like a 10,000 seat arena. So it was like a clustered around. Uh, there were some good matches. There were some shitty matches. Um, I wasn't booked. So what happened was a, a handful of the... I used to wrestle at PCW at the time, which is um, a long-running promotion that's still running Melbourne today. And so a bunch of us got in a van and basically drank and drove from Melbourne to Sydney, uh, just vomiting out the window the whole way. It was fun. And we all brought out <laughs> interesting case that only a couple of us were booked. But then someone who was flying up missed their flight. And uh, someone's gone, I'll bring your gear to the venue, Crackers. Maybe they'll use you instead. So I turn up with my gear, like a mic replacing someone in the Rumble. And um, Andy Ravens come up to me and gone, who are you? I'm like, oh, Cracker Jack. I told him I was going to fill in for Lee Star. He's like, no, nah, he's turned up. Uh, so uh, look, it's wrestlers only. Can you get out of here? Stop <laughs> 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 Oh, my little, my little heart. Uh, and so I had to take my way home from Homebush on like some 38 degree day. Didn't know where the fuck I was going. Took me hours to get back. I was horribly hungover. From the drive. So I didn't work that one, but I did ruin the hotel afterwards that Andy Randy paid for. So that was my vengeance. Uh, <laughs> fucking nuts. Uh, I was staying at the hotel across the room. That was much cheaper, but I came across to the fancy place. I moved all the plants from the foyer into someone's bedroom. Uh, I turned up the next day and put the whole tray of um, complimentary breakfast there. So I, I got my vengeance there. And a few years later, I did end up booked on, I think, what ended up being the final uh, Australian Wrestling Super Show. Uh, right. Like a 16 match at um, a big tent pavilion in Penrith in front of a couple of thousand people. So that was pretty cool. But yeah, it just it sort of petered out from there. And in the, the intervening years, occasionally someone tries to do one of these things. But you can imagine the pain in the ass it is in terms of getting all the promoters on the same page and... Yeah, like, you know, the, they tend to have more success when the matches themselves aren't into promotional because then you're not doing the dance of you know trying to get someone to put over someone for someone. Else. Yeah, fuck's sake, you, know, you can only have so many time limit draws and that sort of shit <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> to, to protect everyone. Someone's got to take the fall, exactly. Yeah, you know, that's a hard sell for some people, absolutely. Well, it's great that I finally got to speak to someone that was a part of that. Um, I remember it from back in the day. Unfortunately, the only thing I do remember from watching it was Phil Picasso uh, performing in, I think, 
a battle royal or, or a rumble yes. and uh, someone was trying to attack him whilst he was posing for the camera and he wasn't selling it. I don't think he was even aware someone was trying to yes. attack him. Yes, I don't know that film needs to be mid-posed to not have time to sell for people. Um, the hilarious <laughs> thing about that was I think only one guy was meant to go on the corner and pose. I think because they didn't want every single person posing on the corner and Phil was terribly upset that he wouldn't be able to get on the buckle and do his Birdman re-entity. So I was like, all right, Phil, you can do it too. <laughs> but like, it was super ambitious. Like props to Andy Rand for going ahead with it because managing that many egos and difficulties. And, yeah. And he was kind of like a, an outsider in terms of the scene. So lots of people would have been trying to influence him and stuff like that. Of course, yeah. But amazing, he ran as many as he did. He took care of everyone. He put all the workers up in hotels and shit. Like, um, it was pretty good. You, I'm surprised when did that screen, because that got screened on Foxtel. Yeah. That was a big deal for Australia mm -hmm. too. The first one got aired. I'm sure someone's got it, but no one trades tapes anymore. So it's kind of hard to track down obscure shit like that sometimes. Yeah. And if anyone out there does have a copy of this, please try and upload it to YouTube or something. Uh, I would love to see it again after all these years. Yeah. And um, I do hope one day there is a more, more attempts at trying to get the whole country together to um, put on a big show to highlight how great, you know, Australian professional wrestling has become. Uh, yeah. I know it's cracking, you know, it, it, it's cranking over here in, uh, in, in Perth with EPW. They've been doing very well the last few years. Um, and I've heard some great things over in Melbourne as well. I hope to catch up with some of that the next time I'm able to get to Victoria. So I wanted to also transition this into uh, the first time you had the chance to work with EPW um, a few years back now. Um, when, did you, when were you first aware of the company? I know when they first came out, they had a little bit of heat um, over the way that they were doing things. But as time went on, they got more and more professional. Um, so when, did you, when were you first aware of EPW? And how did it come about that you ended up being able to work here? Um, I first heard of them when they were ECW, because I think they were called Eastern Coastal Wrestling. Yeah. Explosive Coastal, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, uh, a lot of us and a lot of fans were on um, the WWF Down Under forums that were also managed by Rowan. So he was sort of early in doing a lot of things to drag Melbourne wrestling out of the the dingy 90s and into the, the, the modern 2000s. And so this website was one of them. And so people talked about their shows there. Um, I, was, I was new too. I didn't give a shit who trained or anything like that. I mean, they did the right thing in terms of their own talent by having Jags come over and sort of yeah. to that first generation so they could pass on. But uh, I mean, you know, it just happens. Like if you love wrestling and there's no scene, you have to create one. I mean, I had, my understanding is they had to do the same thing in Hong Kong as well because they didn't have their own scene. And so they just made their own and then brought talent in to sort of shore up stuff. So I was always cool with them. Um, I met a handful of them at the first Super Show. So that was kind of cool because a lot of us hadn't met each other from other promotions and stuff. But I don't think they brought me over until it was reawakening something or other. And it was like a, a two-night show. And right. to my shame, I do not remember who I wrestled on the first night, but I know he gave me about a thousand shots. I can find that. I'll I find think, it. I think these two stars were new from a cage match I had in Melbourne and so many chops and they all just, it just opened up. Oh. Like, it was fucked. <laughs> and then the next night I wrestled uh, Bobby Marshall. 
who I think is semi-retired now, but he had a bit of a run in the States. And we had a hardcore match that was huge fun. Uh, beat the shit out of me, holy Christ. <laughs> While the record, like within two minutes, I'm like, I'm in trouble here. And then as he went to vault over the rope, the, the guardrail at me after climbing to ringside, I grabbed him, I saw him, hit him in the face while he was in midair and not expecting it. And he crashed and burned, and I was able to sort of meet him halfway from then on. But uh, yeah, he felt very wild to wrestle, he was cool. Um, yeah, and then I've been back a couple of times since. I went back and did another reawakening, and I was in like a, a six-man hardcore match. I was called Crackers Invitational, and I was yes. Like I've, I've just found the information before. here. Uh, actually, the first night at uh, EPW Perth Revolution in 2009, you faced Devlin Reeves, and then the next yeah. night, Bobby Marshall. And then we're talking about the seventh of November, seventh uh, uh, of November, 2009, Crackerjacks Hardcore Battle Royal. Yes. Um, and of course, I was like deep in deathmatchy stuff at the time because I was sort of that was like the height of my mutilating eras at uh, Wrestle Rock. So I'm like, um, uh, I think David Storm was in charge. I'm like, Stormy, can I do my thing here? Or is this like a pots and pans smackdown bullshit? He's got it. <laughs> and I'm like, but my name's on it. Uh, and that's always the curse of being a hardcore guy. And, you know, it's, it's actually been um, like a common point that I've been able to banter with, with international hardcore guys when I've worked with them because they've all had the same experience. You're the hardcore guy and then you go into a new territory or a new promotion and they book you as a hardcore thing, but then they put a bunch of restrictions on you because that's how that place works. Yeah. And people aren't going to assume that the venue didn't let you do it. They assume it's me. Like I remember I rolled around in light tubes at Wrestle Rock, then go on a plane and went to a show in AWF and um, they've gone, all right, we're here in a street fight. Can I do anything? Do you have any weapons? Can, I, can we have blood? No. Well, then we're not having a hardcore match because I'll be the one who wears it if it's a soft. We'll have a regular yeah. match. And then we'll spill to the outside and we'll give them a taste of it. Um, I always thought Mick Foley was really good at that. Like, even in regular matches, he usually kind of work in one confrontational bump or one nasty mm -hmm. thing. So you still get a taste of it even in non hardcore. So I sort of had to do that. But uh, yeah, I was uh, forbidden to bleed everywhere. And then someone hit me on the head at that reawakening with a KFC tray and it exploded and lacerated <laughs> right on the scalp. I grabbed the camera and gone, sorry, Dave, and stuff. Um, <laughs> that match came back into prominence because um, a gif went viral of, uh, I think it was Gavin McGavin holding a Swiss ball. Yeah. And, up and drop kicks it and shoots him into the corner. Yes. Great. I remember that clip. Um, but that was good fun. Uh, my main memory of it is afterwards, um, while stapling myself like a bad motherfucker at ringside, I put one right in my nipple by accident. <laughs> no, I'm not noticing that. Um, and then I got really drunk and I thought I ended up at the beach, but it turned out to be the rubble of a demolished hospital. So oh. that was <laughs> I'm like, that's where all the test tubes are for. <laughs> Good times. Uh, and then every other time, that was the last time I worked for EPW. Uh, I went back in Perth for a few more years when I was working for New Horizons Pro Wrestling, which is when I yeah. had a lot of international and stuff. Yeah, and that's where we're going to next, Jack. Take oh, right. Sick. Yeah. So um, this is going to be a little sort of a fun personal story as well. So um, I've been a wrestling fan. Oh, I'm 23 years old. I've been a wrestling fan for as long as I can remember. And that show where you worked at Necro Butcher at Battle of Honor 2012 Night 2, I believe. Yes. Um, that was the first show I ever saw live. The first time <laughs> I ever went to live. And that was because... Exactly. And that was because of Necro Butcher. I was big into hardcore wrestling at the time. And um, yeah, well, let's, let's get your, let's get your story first. Um, 
How, how was that match for you? Because that match was fucking crazy. I, I, I loved it. Oh, I loved it. There you go. Still got some memorabilia from it. Uh, I have to admit, having a couple of these beers has made me feel a lot better. I'm feeling mm. better right now, but we'll see how I feel later well, on. We'll get back into fighting weight. Yeah. Um, okay, so Necro Butcher, I had uh, befriended the promoter, uh, Mana, um, a few years earlier when I came over. I worked with him in Adelaide for, it was like the last of the international assaults before they took the big break and came back as World Series Wrestling a couple of years ago. And this one was a fucking disaster. So it was part of the Adelaide Fringe Festival. Don't think anyone told them because we were in this Hungarian club and each night had about 20 people in the crowd. Uh, and Sammy Zane oh, was in town for that tour too. So um, I think on the, the first night, the attendance was so bad that they cancelled the show. And I'm like, I already spent my match for real two lockies. This is fucked. Uh, and then the second night, I wrestled Mana. And he was kind of on the way out as an active performer and hurting. And I really took care of him. And I think he appreciated that. Although he did smash a priceless Hungarian mug over the back of my head during the match. <laughs> and, uh, <I'm> very, very <laughs> terribly upset. <laughs> He's like, oh, you can have a t-shirt if you like. I don't think you can have a t-shirt. But I really hit it off with Mana there. And so he'd been wanting to bring me in for a while. And when he had that show, it was meant to be Homicide versus Necro Butcher. But for right. some reason, Chris wasn't able to get in. I don't know if he goes to the airport and introduced himself as Homicide. But for whatever reason, I didn't <laughs> let him in. And I think um, they kind of wanted someone who, like, you know, might have had talented guys working for him, but I don't think he had any guys with any real hardcore experience. And so he yeah. flew me over to do that instead. So I teamed with um, Necro on the first night for just like a fun tag brawl. And then the second night we had our match. Um, it was awesome. I bled more in that match than I think I'd ever bled previously. Um, and I still didn't come close to touching him. <laughs> like, <laughs> really wild, really fun. Um, he was awesome, like super talented. Uh, felt like I was in very safe hands, but Jesus Christ, he was stiff. Holy shit. I wrestled um, Loki a couple of months later for the same company, and uh, Necro's tops were worse, I gotta say. He beat the shit out of me. <laughs> Jeez, that's a, that speaks a lot for, uh, for Necro because, man, I saw Loki probably a year later in 2013, absolutely. Fucking kill Davis Storm. Um, <laughs> yes. Oh my god. Yeah, he was really. I think Necro's got these huge fucking hands, though, like really big, callous, rough hands. And so it was like being hit with a handful of gravel over and over. <laughs> you yeah, know, I can imagine. And stuff like that. And there was so much blood. Um, it was definitely like I've done hardcore shows where you feel the crowd get into the bloodlust. Like they're mortified, but they're also like, meh. Other times you feel people kind of pull back in horror and you think, oh, I'm miscalculating this one. We made it too violent. Uh, and that's what kind of happened with that, I think, because it was a family show and there were puddles of blood everywhere. <laughs> so I think for everyone who enjoyed it, there was someone else who was um, traumatized by the experience. Clearly you enjoyed it. Well, I, that was a very memorable night for me. Like we had friends in the crowd who were handing was it handing Necro the chairs from the crowd? Yes. Yep, that was um, two of our friends. Uh, you bled on an another one of our friends' shoe. Um, <laughs> and we actually, we actually uh, got to meet you afterwards outside. Um, so this is, for me, being, this interview is awesome because we actually got to meet you outside like when you were in the, um, sort of behind the jail cells, but it was kind of like a... Oh, know, yes, the weird backstage. Yeah. Yeah, I and I remember... An hour before I had to rush back to the uh, airport. Um, and I remember... 
Oh my god! I remember. Um, I remember asking the first thing I said to you, and you also bearing in mind you're the first wrestler I ever met in my life, so that's awesome. Um, and the first thing I asked you was after your match with Necro Butcher. Did that hurt? <laughs> <laughs> what like, a question! So stupid, right? No. <laughs> of course not. Oh, no, that was fun. I had to get on a flight like uh, about an hour later, so I did what I often do on those sort of trips. In that, I use that hour to get as fucked up as possible. Yeah. Uh, so I've been really <laughs> on the plane with like this huge steam in my head, and uh, I was drinking too much on the flight, and it just started between that and the pressure started bleeding down my face. Oh, Somewhere I've got shitty hand camera footage of me uh, cleaning out the wound in the airplane toilet and stereoscoping it shut. But it had that thing where it healed just enough that there were, you know, all the little coagulated platelets were in that crevice. So I kind of had to gouge them back out again so I could get the edges of the wound shut, tape shut. I'm just sterilizing the scotch from my little <laughs> 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 jiggling, but drunk it was. It was fucked up. Uh, great time though. Necro was class act, really. Yeah. Awesome, man. And you also got to work our, uh, our very good friend who we had on the show a fair, few, a fair while ago, Hardcore Holly. Um, how was that experience for you, man? He's, he's a tough son of a bitch. He really is. Um, I really like, I've always liked Hardcore Holly. Like, you know how you have your favorites and most of people's favorites tend to be the main adventure guys. You know, mm. Stone Cold, take it off. Like, I love those guys, but Holly was probably one of my favorite guys who never made it to the top. Yeah. Um, I also was fucking cool. I loved hardcore Holly just bashing the shit out of people and built like this shit. Um, so that was really cool, but also quite daunting. And it was that same thing again where it's an international and they're doing a hardcore match. And I was very conscious of, you know, not, not taking liberties, not making presumptions, not rubbing them the wrong way. I had a really good introduction because I'd been doing a lot of work for another Melbourne promotion called OCW at the time, uh, which had allowed me to meet. Paul London and Brian Kendrick. And so I'd been power around with them. Uh, and they were friends with him and they'd been on, I think, one of the same shows in Perth. Yeah. So that was kind of my end. They're like, you'll be fine because you have respect because you're not a dickhead and stuff like that. Oh, thank you. Uh, so that was kind of my end. But even then, like, Holly's like a rough dude and quite intimidating. I'm like, oh, hello, Mr. Holly and uh, Alex, we're working together today. You're like, we're doing what now? You're like, we're, we're wrestling <laughs> together. Um, and so I gave him a speech that I always give these sort of internationals and that, you know, because um, my experience is what they want more than anything else is to not get hurt so they can go home and keep yeah, it yeah. home and stuff like that. And I understand how polarizing the scars can be because the presumption in some people's minds is that I'm a, you know, a garbage guy and stuff. Um, and so it was, you know, uh, well, look, you know, the wicked, no one had told them it was a street fight either. So I had to broach that on the day of the show. Like, well, we'll have a street fight. Well, I just want to make it really clear. Uh, I know I'm mutilated, but you know, I'm gonna. I'm not here to do like a garbage match or anything. Nice and safe. No one's getting hurt. We'll we'll make it just a sort of entertainment tell a story. He's like, sounds good. And then some dumb fuck from Ring Crew brings over a barbed wire chair they prepared themselves. He goes, oh. Oh, I got this for the match, guys. He's like, we're using that. Get the fuck out of you, kid. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was great fun though. Uh, he he had a good time. He um. Uh, he was like beating the shit out of me, but it wasn't unreasonable or anything like that. I think I'd been hardened to the pummeling after wrestling um, Necro and Loki. Uh, but I had a really good time. It was like a, a guy I never expected to get to wrestle, and I got to wrestle, so that was cool. Oh man, yeah. Holly is awesome, man. He um, On the show, he was 
so nice, so great. Um, you spent 45 minutes talking about wanting to go be on the show alone on the History Channel again. So those listening, let's, uh, let's get Bob Holly on alone. Um, back to you, Carl. I mean, uh, Jack, uh, there's a few things I want to say after some of the last few things that um, we've had uh, said on the show. Your first wrestler that you met, got to talk to, was Cracker Jack. Yes. My first wrestler that I met that I got to talk to with my friends was Doug Basham, and we're interviewing him tonight. That's so it's a crazy. nice little come full circle story for both of us here today. It's fucking it's insane. Yeah. <laughs> it a long time in the setup, but it worked. Yeah, paid off. <laughs> um, so I, I wanted to um, get your th- thoughts on, you know, seeing Australian professional wrestlers finally getting into the big time after all these years. We've had so many great talents over the years that never went over there, but now they're finally getting there. How are you feeling about that? I'm sure a lot of them are your friends. Uh, yeah, it's really cool. Like when I was coming in, the other side of the world was the other side of the world. Like it was a long way away. And I think maybe like a handful of guys had gone over there and done some work in the States, like um, Livewire Johnny Parks, Rob Matrix. That was about it. Um, certainly nothing on the level that we're seeing these days. You know, uh, and it was, a, you know, a, Nathan Jones was still a long time away from happening. And then he was, I never really considered him an Australian wrestler because I don't think he ever worked in Australia much. Right. Like assault show. So I think Mark Mercedes like did our, some uh, stuff with WCW. Oh, of course, yeah. Mercedes worked for WCW for a while in the yeah. 90s, I'm assuming. Uh, but yeah, it hadn't really happened and it wasn't possible. And also they didn't come here. Um, and so the whole thing was totally disconnected. I think right now is an amazing time to come into the industry because it actually is a viable career path to WrestleMania. Mm. And that's nuts. Um, so I, I think that's been really good. Um, like it, it validates us as well. Like you get, uh, like for one thing, it just means when these guys get signed and their birthdays come around, you get your own social media bump. I got his picture of me with uh, Buddy Murphy, Matt Sorley. Yeah, we're totally friends. Yeah, <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> oh, I got extra likes because he's more famous than me. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so so that's really good. Uh, it's really good for the local promotions too. Like, um, you know, Melbourne City Wrestling can say, look at all our past talents and they're now on WWE or now yeah. currently on Ring of Honor or something like that. Like, I think that's really cool. Um, I think it encourages more people to try out and get into the business. And also, hopefully, what we start seeing is more natural athletes trying it for wrestling in Australia. Because if you're if you're big and strong and fast and athletic, you know, you've got other options to make a living out of your body in Australia besides wrestling. So I think they often go into football and basketball and things like that. Whereas now hopefully some of those natural athletes in subsequent generations will look at wrestling and go, well actually this could be a way to make it as well. And so we'll start getting better athletes coming in. But, um, yeah, it's, it's done wonders for it. It's, uh, God, I wish I was coming in now instead of 21. <laughs> composed of uh, yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, wonderful women's wrestler too. Like, the options there, I think, have been really good. Uh, I mean, it's a pain in the ass sometimes because, you know, you try assembling a card of women in this country. By the time the show rolls around, most of it will be redundant because half the girls have been signed. Uh, so it does make it hard in that sense. Um, but it just creates more opportunities again for the women who are developing. They get to step on the shows because these options open up because like, then you get signed, then you get signed. 
Yeah, it's yeah. it's been it's been fantastic seeing everyone see uh, seeing so much success over there, and, and a little mind blowing for me that you know Shane Haste has been on Monday Night Raw, and I competed on the same backyard wrestling show as him in like <laughs> two thousand and two, many years ago. So that's like a little bit mind boggling for me to to see how far he went and you know how far I did not go. Um, it really is, like, uh, and it kind of it lets you know, like we're all doing the same thing. Like it's there are different ways to do wrestling and obviously different levels in terms of how lucrative it is, but it is kind of sort of reaffirming that we're all in the same industry. If your guy to peers can end up, you know, walking down to the ring at WrestleMania, it's like, oh, we are all doing the same thing. That's reassuring because it's it, again on the other side of the world, it's easy to feel like you're not part of the international industry. But what we've seen sort of in the last 15 years with flights being cheaper, matches able to be viewed online, all that sort of shit is it's it's a global industry and there are little territories again which i think is really sweet yeah yeah Great. um so i want to fast forward to 2015 i really need to see this footage because this sounds fun 2015 cracker jack was thrown into the ocean by melbourne-based tag teams <laughs> mercer and gabriel wolf Washing up on a mysterious shore in a 12-month storyline told in a series of short online films that saw Cracker Jack surviving in the wilderness trying to find his way home. That is amazing. That is such a great idea. I need to see all of this and how it played out. What was the idea behind this? Is this you You starting to wind down with the hardcore stuff now? You want to start doing more story-driven related things? Um, I think uh, that came out of the fact that I had an injury. Right. Um, I'd had a bulging disc in my neck for a while at the C7 and it was becoming increasingly problematic. And, you know, I'm of the generation where, again, we're all trying to be cactus and taboo. We're all trying to work hurt and be badass and, you know, not seek proper treatment and go out and party after you wrestle and all that fucking stupid shit to shorten your career. Uh, and so I had, I had like 15 years of, you know, I broke my foot and instead of taking two months off, I wrestled in a space team for six months. Um, you know, are oh, you got a concussion? Oh, I'll work anyway. Fuck it. Blah, blah, blah. All that dumb macho garbage that just shortens careers and kills people. Uh, and so I've neglected this for a long time, but I was starting to lose feeling in my arms. And uh, that's problematic uh, from a safety perspective in wrestling because I need to lift other people. So, and unfortunately, I was more successful than I've ever been. I think I was heavyweight champion at PCW, Melbourne City Wrestling, Warzone, something else. Like I was having my most successful time but I was starting to become a liability in the ring. So I'm like, I need to be free, all right? And I didn't want to just, oh, I'm hurt, I'm going away. That's fucking lame. And so while toying around the idea of doing this, I thought they should throw me in the ocean and I'll be lost at sea. But I didn't realize how long it would take to rehab the injury and get it so I can, you know, take a power bomb and not lose feeling my arms and legs. Um, So I kind of met all my obligations, dropped all my titles one by one, including the last... The last 10 seconds of like, like, I never knew if I'd come back, is the other thing. Right. I never knew if I'd be able to. I didn't know how bad it would be. Um, like, it was not the sort of injury, like, it wasn't worth operating on, and it wasn't the sort of thing where, you know, I was in, you know, additional danger of being paralyzed for life or anything like that. It was just the pain was astronomical and the numbness was unsafe. Uh, and I didn't know if I could come back. And so I met all my obligations, dropped all my belts, did my, um, 10 second job, one of two 10 second jobs I've done to Elliot, Tony, Modra, Brendan, Sexton. And, um, <laughs> and I'm lying there. Even, even the setup for that match was fucked. 
Like I was world champion, I was meant to defend the title against Carlo Cannon. I jumped in from behind and powerbombed him through the stage. As I powerbombed him, I lost all feeling on the left side of my body. He's gone oh, boom, and he's in the hole, and I had to get in the ring and do the challenge, and my arm was just hanging like a needle. And I'm on the mic going, I'm invincible! Anyone fight me, I'll beat all of you. And so Sexton <laughs> came out, tried to spear him, caught me, gave him the jackhammer, and I'm just lying there going, oh, I'm done. I may never have another match. Oh, and so <clears throat> this lost the seed through, I didn't know how long it was going to go for. And it was partly just an interesting thing to do. And I was still working on shows backstage, but I would sneak in and out of the building. So no one in the scene as a fan saw me for a year. And I kind of used the lost at sea thing as kind of like a, a metaphor for whether I was even going to find my way back to wrestling or if it just wasn't going to happen. I was, I was going to go two ways. The other plan was I would just kill Cracker Jack off in the woods and never return. But uh, if you go to my Cracker Jack YouTube, um, there's about 12 videos and it sort of does the whole thing. And it's the Lost at Sea series. Amazing. Um, of Blaster TV. So it was, and you watch and very quickly they ramp up in ambition and complexity. Uh, and all this shit is done on a shoestring budget. So um, like it started with me almost freezing to death, stumbling out of the ocean in the middle of winter with frozen fish down the front of my tights. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, you're trying to, I'm lost on a, on a desert island and there's a fucking speedboat in the background or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, tourists are the bane of that because you, you can't lock off a location or anything. So I'd be like, I'm lost and no one will find me. And then someone's dog would walk into shot and start licking me or something. <laughs> um, but it, it sort of built up the final episode, I think, is um, one of the more expensive promo videos in Australian history because I spent like 1800 bucks on, on props and effects and I had to rent a car to get it all out to the location. And it's shot in these uh, redwood forests in Warburton. And I didn't realize that the week of the shoot, Better Homes and Gardens had done a goddamn story about these wonderful redwoods. And so I get there with my cast and my extras and my catering and all my special effects. And all these fucking tourists are like taking the same goddamn photo up the trees and stuff like that. So we had to shoot around them on the day. And I'm like, spent so much money. <laughs> uh, but it ended up working. And we played that video where I sort of exit the island and appear backstage and then came out and attacked Slade Mercer and Gabriel Wolf uh, live on the show. And uh, my first match back was a death match after a year off. So I obviously wasn't done with it. And that was one of those matches where I like halfway through, I thought I have gone too hardcore for this audience. OCW usually had nothing but gross old men at it. But on that one day, everyone brought their kids. I don't know why. <laughs> 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 They're rolling around in thumbtacks and they squeezing lemons on me and stabbing me and shit like that. Like, got really... <laughs> uh, it was a good time. I was back uh, for two more years at least. That's cool, man. That, that that pop you must have got when you finally returned must have been Road Warrior-esque. It was pretty cool because the video, we got to the venue and shot the end of the video. Right. So I like appear backstage and people are like, he's fucking here! And stuff. So <laughs> yeah. you know, it, was, it was pretty cool. I was pretty happy. We had a, a good crowd for the actual comeback. Awesome. Fantastic. Um, I also wanted to... To bring it into 2017 uh, and this story that you have with Lockie <coughs> Hendricks, um, I just watched the the whole build up uh, promo video about oh. ten minutes before we went on the air just to just to see what it was all about. Um, your career was on the line with this at the end, but this was a great long winding story. It looked really uh, fun and entertaining and and had a lot of uh, you know, twists and turns. Tell me a little bit about that story and you know, your friendship and, and working with Lockie and choosing him to be your final opponent. 
Okay. Um, all right. So I think the day after my return match from being lost at sea, I was doing a Melbourne City Wrestling. I wrestled the next night as well. Uh, doing a Melbourne City Wrestling show. And uh, the boss fan came up and said, we're going to put you with Lockie Hendricks. And I'm like, who? Because I don't, I don't learn Lockie's names. I've been around for so long now. So many people come and go that I make a policy to not learn anyone's name unless they put me over three times and pull me out of these two burning cars. Uh, and like, who? And they pointed to this hidden greasy hair. <laughs> They're like, him? Oh, this would be great. Because uh, I was getting big into Rick and Morty at the time. And so I thought, this would be that jam. I'll be the old degenerate leading him astray. Uh-huh. Like, young, wide-eyed boy and stuff like that. And like, forget about it, that's fine. We'll, we'll follow my plan. And he gets covered in blood and shit like that. And so we had a little uh, an impromptu team that day. That was cool. And then from there, um, we just started building on it. And the first six months, we were really kind of feeling um, the whole thing out. And I sort of, like, I was still healed when I came back. And so that first six months was kind of like my face turned over that period. Uh, and then heading into the end of 2016, I'd started thinking, ah, maybe I should do something else. Like, I'm still pretty beat up. I managed to come back after the bad neck. Uh, my intention has always been to wrestle until I die. Like, I never want to full-on walk away from it forever. It's uh, My retirement plan is to be like Abdul the Butcher or the original Sheik or Batman on your pants, walk around standing. <laughs> yeah. No bumps, can't do anything. I mean, Abby's last couple of matches, he couldn't even get in the ring. He just stayed inside the tag matches and they just throw their blood, throw his enemies to the floor so he could stab him and then roll them back. <laughs> I'm like, that. I want that. I want someone to fly me into Japan and I will stand inside of that and shit while people throw people down for this Um, But I thought, you know, I wanted to take a bit of a break. Um, I was sort of doing other things. I was sort of, you know, experimenting with other visual art stuff. Um, and I thought, I should tell this story and I'll tell it over a year. Uh, NCW had a hell of a following. I had a really strong um, creative team who I could trust to sort of give me the rope I needed, but also vet my ideas so I wouldn't take it in a dumb direction because, you know, it's. Like, I'm, if there's anyone who shouldn't be given unfettered power, it's me. I, I yeah. know, I'm not going to restrict But it, it makes the work better. And so I'm like, oh, I should wrap it. And I think I was watching, um, I think it's 1996, Godzilla versus Destroyer, um, where they kill off Godzilla before they sold the license to uh, Roland Emmerich to make that terrible Matthew Broderick film. And there's this piece of music at the end when Godzilla goes supernova and basically melts. And I'm like, that is a fucking cool piece of music. That's what I want to play when I retire. And I was kind of inspired by, um, oh, I think it's one of the Atushi Amida versus Terry Funk death matches where everything right. explodes. And then as the smoke clears, this guitar solo plays. And it's, it's just so theatrical. Like it's, it's you know, why would a song play? Obviously it's, you know, it's not tremendously naturalistic and wrestling usually tries to generally huge towards pretending to be a sport, but I do like it when it goes out there a bit. And that was kind of my other inspiration for it. So I'm like, that's my moment. That's what I want. Let's take a year to get there. And so I told Lucky, and he was like, holy shit, okay. And we just sort of built it from there and told this story of um, him kind of morally redeeming me while I corrupted him. And so we kind of pass each other. And he right. And I ended up the hero. That's beautiful. A 12 month double turn. Um, and it, you know, every step of the way, not all of it worked. Some of it did. Um, we had some some talent that was a bit greener along the way, and I think we were trying to tell a weird, complicated story, and trying to do that while elevating the experienced talent can be an extra challenge. 
Uh, but I mean, along the way, I got a match with Davis Storm. That had been a dream match for a long time. He understood exactly what we were doing. He was an integral part of Lockie's corruption and um, me being shown to fail as a mentor. That was quite good. We did some good stuff with Preston and Payne and some not so good stuff with Preston and Payne, but I was really happy with the last match we had with them. Um, the Brad Packer dream every step of the way. Got to wrestle Richie Taylor and his brother before um, I wrapped up, so that was cool as well. Lots of nice little things building to that final match. And I think it had all gotten so huge in my head that I kind of worked myself into a shoot and I was kind of overwhelmed leading in. Um, the two weeks leading into the match, I was doing a lot of video content where I was assembling the weapons. I was making the barbed wire bash. I was making the bed of Right, yeah. That sort of shit. And then the night before the show, I was assembling that promo video you watched before. Yeah. Um, and I'm like working the footage and I'm doing voiceover. There's the million little pieces. And I'm like, it's, these sort of video things are very important to me because I think, you know, it, it's great when you've got shit outside of the show. Like you turn up to that final show. It's great if you've been to the other shows and you understand the context. But I, as a storyteller, I believe on the night, I've got to give you everything you need to understand the story. Yeah, I agree. Otherwise, yeah. you're kind of excluded and you won't get it. And I've failed. I can't. We're not raw in SmackDown. I don't have a colossal TV media engine that's made sure you know all the shit. So I had to kind of capture an 18-month storyline in that one video. And, you know, I, it, it's, again, you're able to understand it without having seen the 12 months leading in. So I nailed that. <clears throat> but unfortunately, I pressed export at 7 in the morning on the day of my last match and hadn't slept. So I slept for an hour and then I drove into the venue. I lived like two hours away from the venue with like a car filled with barbed wire and beds and dust. If we crashed, the scene would have made no fucking sense at all. <laughs> what the hell was this? Yeah. Um, it's like the only time I've never felt pumped for a match. I felt fucking dead inside. I smashed like a dangerous serve pre-workout. And um, even jogging up and down the stairs to get pumped beforehand, I felt like my boots were made of lead. Like, Fuck. Um, I was just fucked. It's um, the, the match itself went like a dream. It all more or less went according to plan. There's obviously bits I've tweaked now and changed, but I was generally very happy with it. I was very happy with the reaction. I think it's, um, you know, it's easy to get people to boo. It's um, harder to get them to care. It's always easy to get them to laugh, which is why I think people sort of skew towards comedy sometimes as a bit of an easy thing. But it's, it's pretty hard to make them cry in wrestling. I think people have a barrier to getting that invested. And so to be able to look out and see people genuinely moved was rewarding, even though I was dead inside. Uh, but I'd also sustained a permanent brain injury in the last 30 seconds of the match. And really? Yeah, those DVD, basically at the end of the match, Rocky Hendricks, um, like he rolls me onto the bed of nails, sit sledgehammer, send uh, block on my guts. And then as I'm getting up in my final moment on my feet, he seizes the DVD player. And uh, this DVD player was fucking heavy, like it was made out of steel. And the idea is he's going to beat me down, basically put me down on my knees. Um, but it fucked me up. I was sort of bracing my head here to protect my bulging disc. But in the process, I gave my head less room to move. And it kind of fucked that up. It was a bit like when we put Mankind, put those chair shot things, handcuffed behind his back. Right, yeah. I think being like this compromised my ability to buckle in the shot. And so it was like, ding! And there was a ringing sound in my head. Bang again. Oh, that doesn't feel very good. We'll do two more. Right, bang. And then took the last shot and went down, took the pin. And I was a bit hairy, but I didn't know how bad it was. So I went out and I drank and headbanged all night. 
had random oh. <laughs> And then uh, the next day, until dawn. So I was on my second day in a row of no sleep. Uh, got up, had a coffee, and then it was like a hand grenade went off in my head. And Shit. I went to the bloody Christmas party, and they gave me a very nice speech and a little bark and thank you for my work and stuff. And I said, uh, I told them all I wouldn't have retired if I didn't think the scene and Melbourne City Wrestling wasn't finally a place where it could go on yeah. without me and be great. Uh, so I felt like I could have been at that point. But uh, in the weeks afterwards, I started having all sorts of balance issues, like tipping over, uh, room spinning, all that sort of shit. And after some exhausting series of tests, they worked out that basically I'd been so concussed that I broke my brain's ability to read what way up I am at any time through my inner ear. So sure. um, in training for my comeback, I was doing all this stroke style rehab where you try to rewire your neural pathways. So it's lots of standing on the ring light. Um, and that was sort of the barrier to my comeback. Because I never meant to be retired that long. It was, it was only meant to be, it was only meant to be my first retirement. And it's only <laughs> been my only retirement up. <laughs> Shit, you're planning a Terry Funk uh, career there. Always, um, yeah, yeah. Not the retirement, <laughs> keep, keep wrestling forever. That's uh, that's a good time. Yeah, it was a really good time. that Terry Funk. <laughs> um, Jack, I'm throwing it over to you. I've got to go to the toilet though, so um, <laughs> uh, your life, man. Yeah, I'll be back. Your life. <laughs> good luck. Uh, um, yeah, so not too many questions to go now. Just uh, one more from me. One more. From Carl before he does his uh, final segment, but I had something in mind here. Uh, did you ever do any of the WWE tryouts uh, before you retired? No, I did um, the TNA tryout, right? The publicity stunt they held in Martin Place. Um, yeah, I think um, I was in Sydney anyway for a couple of wrestling shows, and then I was meant to fly out to Adelaide, but I delayed for a day so I could do the tryout. Um, I don't really think it was ever really a tryout. Like, what are they? They wouldn't give a sign someone from that and fly them yeah. over on a visa. I think they would have if their tour hadn't been cancelled and replaced with the Hulkamania tour. Yeah. I think they probably would have used whoever they thought was the best in each state on the shows. Uh, but it was, it was like a real cattle call shambles. Like, there were wrestlers there, but also it was just open to any old shithead. Oh, so you had you know, fans getting in the ring, cutting long rambling promos. Oh. Um, I had quite a fun little match with uh, a Queensland guy called Obi Cartel. They're like, everyone pair up. And I knew he was good. And also, he's very much a straight man. And I, my stick shines best against a, a straight man. So I like, picked him. We had a good little match. And then afterwards, I did the old Triple H slide over the top rope into the floor. But in the process, I freak accident crushed my cock against the top rope. And it honestly felt like if you stomped on a zucchini. Like, we were in public, so I ran to the nearest food court and went in the bathroom. And I assumed expected like blood to be in my pants. And it wasn't. It was just tremendously painful. Wow. <laughs> but I had to pretend everything was fine. You know, it sucked. But, uh, yeah, there's a little video they made about it on YouTube. Someone documented the uh, TNA tryouts and made my little documentary over it and stuff. But, uh, but yeah, I knew it was just a PR stunt. Uh, yeah. But, no, never did the uh, WWE tryouts. Uh, my brother did, uh, the mighty Snuff King Gore. He did one recently, but he made the mistake of yelling, let's hear it for snuff porn in the middle of his trial. So, <laughs> they might have done it for him. Although apparently the rep laughed, but afterwards he was like, no, you're not sorry. Yeah, so uh, what actually made you want to retire in the end? Obviously, it's just sort of um, a long list of injuries, as you've said. Um, obviously, it must be just, it would have just been time, as you explained before. So was there a sort of a reason at the end of the day or did you just sort of feel like you know end of 2017 it's just 
Good to go. Um, I think one of the things was, it was the, you know, I've seen guys retire before. And, you know, firstly, it's a bit of a fucking joke anyway. You're retiring for something you really want you know, you get people who barely sort of retire. Yeah. What from? You didn't fucking train. How is your life going to be different in the wake of this? You'll still walk around calling yourself a wrestler. Uh, so lots of people do that. Well, they're retiring from 100 people. And that's fucking winning. Whereas with Melbourne City Wrestling, I had a high quality show with creative, I trusted to do justice to it. And good draws month after month after month. And I knew I could tell a long form complex story there. And I hadn't had that opportunity before. And, you know, with anything in wrestling, you're like, you never know whether it's going to fall over at some point along the way. So I wanted to jump on it and tell that story, especially considering it was never meant to be my permanent retirement. Yeah. But then the brain injury kind of delayed my comeback because I was meant to, I was hoping to be back in about a year and a half. I wanted to serve it. Like I turned down um, a whole bunch of potential bookings for um, World Series and other things because I wanted to honour the retirement. But then after all my stroke rehab, and started being to the point where I could, you know, take a hurricane run and not vomit from seasickness. I'm like, I'm good to go. And then I was a film set for a movie called Paper Champions last year in June. And um, I just blew my knee out on a simple move. It was just, I was playing a wrestler in the background of the sequence. Uh, I did the film because Gary Sweet was in it. I was like, yeah, Gary Sweet was <laughs> But I was like wrestling in cowboy boots. I was an evil cowboy. And I just did something skewed. Did you see that guy breaking both his legs? Uh, in that background yeah. show. It was like yeah. one of my legs was like that. So I just dropped out of the buckle and just cowboy boots, unfamiliarity, my own hubris, my knee just went out sideways. And oh, I didn't know shit. what the fuck had happened. It felt like I'd done a, a sin vicious. And oh, so I fuck. on my side. Uh, they all just looked at me like the, the car, the director's like, you're right, mate. I'm, like, I'm fine, I'm fine. And they didn't know that wrestlers lie when you ask how they are. And they right. took my word. But what actually happens is while lying on my side, I went into shock, came out of shock, got up and walked around, think I'm okay. And then they're like, yeah, you're not really feeling right. <laughs> and stuff. And within about a week, I got a scan and realized that I uh, completely snapped my ACL, bruised all the bones, crashed all the tendons around and mashed the cartilage. Um, so I had to have surgery on that late last year. And so I've spent my whole pandemic rehabbing that because uh, I probably would have debuted at the end of last year or made my return from retirement, but then I fucked my knee up and blew that out. And then obviously the viral apocalypse happened, which has also delayed everything. So hopefully 2021 is my year. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Ooh. So of course, um, the last question I had was uh, on my on my list was, I guess you've already answered it. Will you ever come out of retirement? I mean, who knows? Absolutely. And then I'll retire and then I'll come back again. Terry Funk it, man. Terry Funk it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I never want to stop. Um, but I wanted to be able to do it less frequently, I think. Um, but I, I think I can still go, I can still contribute, I can still make other people look good, I can still tell stories people give a shit about. Uh, so it's something I, I always want to do. As long as I can get in the ring, as long as people can see their name next to mine on the run sheet and not go, yeah. <laughs> stuff like that. Because like, I had guys like that when I was coming in. The sort of, some of the people who never should have ever been allowed to wrestle, let alone been allowed to wrestle up past the nineties. You'd get booked with them and you'd just be like, oh, fuck. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, as long as I can still make other people look good, entertain, not shit the bed, I want to do this forever. That's awesome, man. That's, that's a lot of balls, too, after having the issues with your brain and all that to still want to keep doing it. Uh, <laughs> much props to you, bro. Uh, I hope <laughs> that I will be in the audience when you do return because I definitely want to get over to Melbourne. 
um, when this bullshit's all over with. Yes, um, I think um, everyone's going to have a lot to prove in wrestling next year. It's been a, a rough year for the world and for wrestling. I think we're all looking to you know, try to turn around. Are you doing a lot of work over there behind the scenes, training and all that stuff? Oh, yeah, I'm getting my dick prints all over everything. Um, so uh, mainly I do it through the MCW Academy represent. Um, so I run my promo class through there. And that's been something I've sort of been developing for about... Uh, I started while I was lost at sea, actually. There was something else I could do. Um, so around 2015, I started... Like, I've always kind of been... Tried to be influential. Because, you know, like, there's... You see people backstage who think something is shit on the show, and they just bitch about it. Whereas I'm like, I've always wanted to try and get in there and fix it. Or, you know, if, if I think something is better, I should try to make it better. I mean, if I think something should be better, I should try to make it better. I, it's, I owe that to this wonderful art form that's let me do so much. Um, so in 2015, I started sort of agenting some shows, booking some shows, helping out backstage, and really getting into teaching and teaching character and uh, promo and all that sort of stuff. And so that's something I've been able to take to the next level at the NCW Academy. And um, I was like, I think I was one of the first people who started taking my classes online when the pandemic hit. Because um, I could see where this was going. I, I assume the worst, they're gonna cough this up. This is only getting worse and worse. I gotta yeah. start, I gotta move my business online. I'm gonna adapt to the schedule. Um, and you know, especially new students, I didn't want them to lose interest in the gap and filter away. Because there were some really talented kids at the Academy. Um, and I got some freelance ones outside the academy as well. Uh, anyone, if you're not at the NCW Academy, but you want me to shout my wisdom at you, hit me up on one of my many socials and I'll, I'll hook you up. I'll, I'll teach you how to be awesome online. Uh, yeah, so I'm doing heaps of that. And um, yeah, I don't know, just trying to help. And it, it helps that subsequent generations of wrestlers after mine are so much better than my generation was. Like my generation was very much, fuck you to the generation before us. And now I'm very much, fuck you to us. And so there was always this tension at Argybarge. Whereas the kids who've come up under me, they're all, oh, what, what could I do to be better? Have you watched my match? How can I look after your broken old man body in this match tonight? Uh, and stuff like that. So they, they deserve as much help as they can get. And anytime any of them make it and get signed and just have successful matches and feel good about the work they're doing and entertaining people, it's immensely rewarding. Not as good as being the center of attention, I gotta say though, if I would choose. <laughs> I would rather it be all about me, but I'm quite happy to be That's cool, man. I'm glad that you're giving back and you're helping out the next generation. Um, and, you know, Australian wrestling can keep thriving because uh, people like you are, are helping out. Um, we're getting to the final few questions here, Crackerjack. Um, I get salty about what's going to happen next. I'm going to throw another one in there that wasn't on the list, but um, is there anyone that you haven't worked with in the Australian wrestling scene that you'd like to have a match with or, or uh, yeah, a story? Yeah. Um, I always wanted to wrestle Robbie Eagles, like before he blew up. I wanted to wrestle yeah. him. I saw this kid like nine years ago, you know, trained by a couple of really good wrestlers who had an excellent pedigree. Uh, always wanted to work with him. And now he's a superstar. It would be great for me. So this is great. Now he's bigger than me. This is, this is good. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I love to wrestle him. Um, I mean, there's guys who I got to wrestle years ago who are still around that I would like to tangle with again and see how, you know, physically I'm slower, but I'm stronger than I was sort of 10 years ago. Um, and I think I'm better and smarter. So, you know, I'd love to tangle with Jag again, who's a guy I wrestled heaps years ago. I would love to wrestle Slakes again. Um, and then there's just heaps of, you know, up and comers. That I love to get in there and wrestle. Uh, I love to wrestle 
Tony Milani. Uh, I'd love to wrestle uh, Jet Ruka. Um, love to wrestle Jake Angel Arthur. Lots of guys like that. Um, what I'm most keen to do though is Bastard Brothers 2.0 because besides hardcore wrestling, I think teaming up with my other younger brother Logan years ago with the Bastard Brothers was like one of the coolest things I ever did. And Gore's like a fucking beast. He's, I mean, he's the toughest guy in Australian wrestling and he's a machine and he's only just scratching the start of his potential. So I would like to hook myself to that wagon as it goes places and uh, <laughs> dust off Bastard Brothers Part 2 and uh, do what we did last time, which is run around beating shit out of everyone. So that's, that's my other ambition. And that opens us up to lots of cool tag teams like uh, the Philippe Brothers, the Natural Classics, the Brat Pack, all those sort of guys. Um, the Velocity, the Awesome. There's some really cool teams around that I'd like to wrestle, especially that there's two other team brothers in the Preston Kindred and the Natural Classics. And that's cool. I've never been brothers versus brothers before. Uh, and I'd like to do that. Ah, cool, man. Nice. Um, it's good to see there's a lot There's a lot that can be done still, <laughs> a lot of uh, stuff that you can rehash from back in the day and make current again. Um, you revisit, yeah, and it's different because you're both at different places. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, you know, these guys I wrestled when they were just in their first couple of years. Uh, and so coming back and wrestling them, you know, when they've come into their own, into their maturity. Like, uh, I've done heaps of work with Adam Brooks, but it was all like five or six years ago. Uh, where in the space of one month, we held the tag team titles, we fought over the Warzone heavyweight title, and I um, crashed his wedding and forcibly married him at WrestleMania. So you know, I had lots of business together, <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's, he's come ahead leaps and bounds. He's, you know, internationally tested now. I'd love to get back and run with him because it would be different. Yeah, and I hope you, uh, you know, come back over to Perth and perform here as well. Yeah, I'm totally down to that. Um, I want to drag Gore with me, come over and get the shit out of some of your local teams. Um, I owe Davis Storm uh, a rematch after he got the better of me in my final year. So yeah, there's lots of guys. It's, it's exciting. Awesome. Cool, man. Um, I want to ask you, what was one thing that you wished you could have done in the business over the years that you never got to accomplish? Um, I wish I'd done more overseas, I think. Um, and the thing with getting overseas is... It's, you know, anyone who goes overseas, you just have to have a day job and work really, really hard at it, save up all your money and then spend money to, to make it overseas. Uh, yeah. It requires a significant investment. And I, so I made myself incredibly available for Australian wrestling, which was good for me and good for the scene. But I think I denied myself the chance to, to get out there and, yeah. um, and work in more places overseas and learn more. Um, like I, I did uh, a short tour for Big Japan when a bunch of us went to Japan in like 2006. I did one show in the UK. I did like uh, some training for Chikara, where my first takeaway was, I do not wrestle this style. This is not for me. I never felt so heavy and clumsy in my life. Um, so yeah, I, I do wish I'd done more of that. And you know, it's, um, I don't think I'm robust enough to pay my dues at the bottom uh, these days, I think. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I can do better here where I can kind of control what happens and I have more agency and stroke and stuff like that. So, yeah, that would be my time machine change, I think. I would just go to fucking work every day for five years, save up my money, go overseas and make a proper play of it overseas. But I can't. Yeah. All right. And so that's one of the many ways in which I serve as a cautionary tale to the next generation. Put your hands up for chair shots, don't hit bang on the concussion, save up and go overseas. Excellent. Excellent. Sounds like a good plan. Um, so, I mean, the next question is kind of similar to the last one, but it's, uh, 
maybe there's something else you can bring up. It's do you have any regrets? Um, sorry. <laughs> oh, you've been wrestling. Uh, <laughs> uh, absolutely, yes. Um, I regret telling Lucky to hit me with that DVD player. <laughs> yeah. I regret doing that movie where I blew my knee out. Um, they're two really, really obvious ones. Um, I regret various occasions where I was a dickhead early on. Um, and I think it is because, you know, that's the thing with wrestling is it's a young person's thing. So a lot of people come of age in the industry. And, you know, what do you do when you're coming of age? What do you do when you're in your twenties? You act like a fucking dickhead. You do stupid mm-hmm. stuff. You're unsure of yourself. So I think I was, I was difficult for people who had to work with me. Um, I, I, I in part cultivated deliberately because lots of shitheads were popping up and I didn't want to do it around by them. So I tried to cultivate a reputation of being extremely easy to work with and then suddenly not because it kept people on their toes. They're like, so you want to, like, yeah, sure, it'd be cool to put this guy over. Yeah, sure. And we were thinking this. No! Because it was fun with people. Uh, but yeah, certainly situations along the way where I was like a dickhead to people or I was a cunt to someone or a jerk. And it's, it's a lot of stuff that I've tried to undo in, in the wake of it. And, and again, you know, much like not working hurt and saving up and going overseas or something I try to sort of foster in the next generation because a lot of that stuff did me no favours. So, yes, being less of an asshole is something I'd like to rip on if I had my drugs. Fair enough, man. I feel you. I, uh... <laughs> <laughs> even today, like, I'm all like, I shouldn't have, ah, oh, last night, I'm a fucking idiot, ah. <laughs> and stuff. So, at, at 41 years of age, I'm still capable of being fucking. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, to do so with less frequency, I think, is a, a noble goal to strive for. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm trying to do right now. I, I was a massive asshole in my early 20s. I'm in my early 30s now. And all I want to do is put others on a pedestal and, uh, and do right by others and put others first. Mm. I think it's important. Yes. Um, so the final segment of the show that we always do, it's called Five Second Frenzy Crackerjack. And Five Second Frenzy is you have five seconds to answer each question. But even if you don't, because a lot of wrestlers need more than five seconds. It's okay. But it's 10 questions, quick fire, just to learn a little bit more about you and what you like in life. Okay, so do my answers, do I have to create an answer and start answering within five seconds? Or the five seconds is my entire time frame to contain the answer? Yeah, the, the entire time frame, yes. All right, cool. Okay, who is your favorite wrestler? Uh, Randy Roddy Piper. Nice. Who was your favorite opponent over the years? Steve Frost. Your favourite match that you've ever had? Uh, it would be me versus Ryan Rollins, aka Australian Suicide, in a death match at Wrestle Rock about eight years ago. Nice. Cool. Your favourite TV show? Uh, I'm going to say Peep Show. Cool. Uh, your favourite film? One Flew Over the Cookies Test. Nice. Your favorite food? Um, I really like barbecued steak. I try to eat less meat these days because it makes me feel bad and it's bad for me, but I love a flavored steak. Excellent. We get that answer quite a lot. That and pizza. Um, Your favorite place to eat? Uh, Luxor King in Flemington. Nice. I'll have to check that out when I come over there eventually. Oh, really good. 
Uh, your favorite alcoholic beverage? I know you don't want to talk about alcohol right now, but. It's, um, I like scotch with a little bit of mineral water. Nice. nice. Your favorite female body part? Um, deltoids. Nice. <laughs> and, fi- <laughs> and finally, your favorite curse word? Um, oh, I said so much cunt. Yeah, that's <laughs> such a good one. Eh? I love it. it, it it's great. <laughs> it, 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 so you get the Australian, you forget, you drop it. That was Damien Slater. Well. It carries a different pace with them. <laughs> 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 sorry, sorry. It, it's a cultural thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, Crack Jack, we want to thank you for your time uh, here today. You, you are certainly a legend in the Australian wrestling business, and uh, you've done a lot for others. You've just entertained people for so many years, and I hope you're very proud of everything that you accomplished and what you are to be able to uh, be about to accomplish in the coming years when you finally come back. Yes, finally. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you for your time, and uh, we really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you for having me, guys. Cheers. No worries. And that was the 55 Live podcast here on the WCWA Network. I am your host, California Fury, alongside my co-host, Jack Wallace, and our new friend, Cracker Jack. And we will see you next time. Thank you.